Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I am a hospice social worker. Today, I have probably most appreciated and most frequent guest, Katie, with me today. This is quite a few now. It is, and I'm loving it. I am loving it. Thank you for having me. Of course. Hi, all. This is Katie, (laughs) also a hospice social worker. Yes, and today we're going to be talking to you in general about community resources in regards to care really towards the end of life specifically or disability or disability i would say just because of where we're coming from where that's our focus and so that's what we see the most of but certainly this could cross over to people with disabilities uh, people that need I mean, even rehab, but then end up being longer. I think this information could be helpful. Yeah, really anyone that is um, going through life and starting to need additional help with personal care and kind of basic needs if that independence is starting to decline. And as much fun as this is not to talk about, it is very much important to know what your options are and what they're not. And what the reality of the options are Uh, that exist. (laughs) Yes. So much of what I talk about in hospice is, you know, we provide a lot of great things, but there's a lot of things that we can't or don't provide. And that is really sometimes more important to talk about and to make sure that it's understood so that we can talk about what's available and what things you might be able to access. Absolutely. And the reason we're talking about this now is because coming up on July 1st. So this is 2023. Of 2023. What is that? 10 days from now? What's today? Today is the 21st of June. Goodness. Um, (laughs) It's going to be the implementation of the Washington CARES Act, which has been talked about in the state a little bit uh, and is now going to actually roll itself out. So it's good for everyone to have an idea of really what it is. Yeah, I was thinking about doing this episode a year ago. That's actually when the original legislation was signed. And what I ended up doing was a lot of private investigation, mostly for my own company. I didn't get on the website or get on the uh, podcast to talk about it, mostly because they actually put it on hold. They had to go back to the drawing board and iron out all the issues that had been brought forth once this was signed into legislation. So it has taken a year. They have gone back to the regulatory board. The legislature in Washington State are the ones that actually make the decisions on what the details are of this law, this act. But uh, like Katie said, it's important for us to talk about it, mostly because I don't think people really understand what it is. I think people see it as a tax and that's all they see. They see that it's this huge tax, or at least they think it is. In reality, it's not. Well, relatively speaking, however, yes. Relative to what you Smaller than I think most people assume. Which and, I can jump in here and say. Yeah, yeah, jump in. Because I, you know, did some homework myself to try to kind of sort out and give context to this. <laughs> so the CARE Act is going to be taking out 0.58% of the of your paycheck. And that is only for those working, only for those employed at the time, blah, blah, blah. Um, however, it doesn't count for some people too. So it's there's there's a lot of variances in this, so something to just be aware of. When it comes down to it, you are be paying 0.58% of your paycheck. If you're working in Washington State. If you are working in Washington State. And 
in Washington state, um, our residents average income is $37,656 a year. Which is insane. Which is so insanely low and terrifying to hear. cost of living. Yeah. yeah. And this is a um, an average from 2020. So I don't know what it is today in 2023. But what that means is annually, each person would be contributing $218 a year, which is $18 a month. Of yeah. their paycheck. And, and I had figured 50000 a year, <clears throat> about $24 a month. Perfect. And obviously it's a percentage and there are opportunities to have an exemption from this. Mm-hmm. So, Yes, and So the exemption period to completely exempt out of this is over. That actually happened last year. And there's I went a different until, exemption. Well, there are exemptions for like federal employees and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But you can't choose now to opt out if you're not already in that exemptive status. True. So if people have questions about the exemption, then I highly recommend because there's so many specifics about this. So if you have personal questions about your own status and where you work and working across state lines and working for a federal company or part-time or self-employed, blah, 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 we're not getting into that. So go to the WA Cares Fund, W-A-C-A-R-E-S Fund, F-U-N-D, dot dot gov. And that is going to give you the majority of the answers, if not at least the phone number of somebody you need to call to find out about it. And you know, it's actually a pretty comprehensive website. It I was impressed. Really it's yeah. pretty simple, pretty direct, good mm-hmm. language, not all fancy worded, which I have a hard time reading through. It doesn't so, look like terms of service. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. But yeah, so obviously, you know, yes, it seems, you know, like a big number. I mean, $218 a year for someone making 37 is a lot of money. $1,000 is a lot of money. So yes. So something to consider. It is. Uh, well, consider or not, you're still going to pay it. It's you a tax. Are. And I think the peop- the problem that people had with it, or at least what I was hearing originally when I haven't heard really anything this year, because I think people forgot about it. But when it came out last year, people were complaining, hey, Um, I'm paying into this tax, but I'm not going to end up using it. Or what if I move out of state and all these things? I would say you're, first of all, paying for it anyway. This was based on what most people may use, utilize from Medicaid, which is paid for by taxpayers. So whether you actually personally use it or not, you're still paying for other people to help get care. Bottom line. And while this program is similar, it is it is also different in that yeah. taxes do contribute to Medicaid, which is the state-funded program. This, while it is considered to be kind of a tax, it is actually more like an insurance that you are paying into. Yes. So there's not a payback. You can't say, okay, I didn't use it. Let me get my money back. There's none of that. Um, there's also not, so when you go to use it, there are a couple things we are going to get into the weeds on. So you, you're not fully vested in general, um, for 10 years, but if you do need to use it, could you, could you explain yeah. vested? Cause that's a big word. Fair. Um, uh, so fully vested into this program means you have paid into it to access the full amount. Is that fair? Yes, and there are also other stipulations with that, I find. There are, and I'm, again, encouraging people to go to the website. If you have questions, if you're retiring before that, please don't email me. (laughs) Don't at me. Uh, Go to the website if you have particular questions. But in general, 
you are fully invested or fully vested into this plan after 10 years. And then after the 10 years, you're able to access the full benefit. Correct. So we want to be clear, you're paying longer than 10 years. You're going to pay for the entirety that you work. This starts with 16, 18-year-olds that are starting to work. You're going to start paying this tax when you start working. It, like Katie said, it is more of an insurance plan for the state slash kind of a savings fund, except for you can't get it back, except for in <laughs> in the accessing of resources. Correct. That's my understanding. It's also, I mean, ultimately, it actually is saving the taxpayers because Medicaid, which is the state-funded program for people that don't have funding to do all kinds of things, it, it costs the state a lot of money. So people that are complaining that the state has to pay for everything, this is actually making sure that our entire population is putting into the pool, as it were, to help everyone else. Yeah, and it doesn't take over for Medicaid. Both programs are still going to exist. So Medicaid long-term care will still be available to people. Yes. You know, it will just, people will spend down and use their CARES Act before they can apply and access Medicaid. Which if they is come brilliant. to that point. Which is brilliant, right? Because Correct. this is what we're going to get into later in much more detail. But in this initial context, talking about the Washington CARES Act, is that there's no required income limit or income restriction to access your Washington CARES Act. There is for Medicaid. And the Medicaid application can take a few months. So the 36500 is that right? That's yeah, total, 36, total benefit? yeah, correct. You're able to, once you're, once you're approved, and I still do have some concerns and questions about how long that's going to take, but we'll see in however long when they start implementing it because you can't access it yet. But you have to actually still go through an approval process to get the Washington CARES Act money. So I'm hoping that they're starting to staff up and get ready for that. Yeah, you're saying like after you've already paid in for 10 years. Right. When you are applying to access this fund. Correct. You do have to have specific daily tasks of living that you need help with. Yes. And you have to go through an application process. Correct. But once you get through that application process, you can access that entire 36500 right away. There are reasons that's important. Katie, why is it important to be able to access all of that money right away? If you, for instance, needed to have your loved one or yourself go into skilled nursing, for example. Whew. Yeah, good question. Having that money up front, which you can do, or you can have it paid out. You can do either way. Correct. Um, if you access it all up front, that is valuable um, for some people because going into a skilled nursing facility or an assisted living is extremely costly and expected to have the first month paid up front, uh, which can be $10,000. Or more or in more, some places. Or more. Sometimes and, less, not frequently. Yeah. And will be more in 10 years. However, the great thing is the Washington CARES Act is actually going to increase its benefit with cost of living adjustment. So it's not 36500 forever. It is just that for now. Yeah. You know, I'd love to 
talk about what that 36,500 actually means. I would love that. <laughs> love, because it will segue nicely into what I actually want to talk about. Yeah, well, because I don't know about you, but staring at that big bulk amount of money, like that doesn't mean anything to me unless I break it down. Mm-hmm. So I did some number crunching, and let's keep in mind I am a social worker, not a mathematician. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm hoping that this is accurate, but I felt pretty good about it. Um I was looking at kind of comparison of what that money looks like in terms of translating that to hours of caregiving in coming into your home to help. Yes. Um, Which would be the most expensive option if we're looking at 24-7 care. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the way that I calculated this is by taking the average salary of a caregiver in Washington state right now as paid for by DSHS. Okay. Which is Um, the lower end, frankly. Which is definitely the lower end. And I took, really, I just took the mean. I took just the complete smack in the middle average. There's a couple different qualifiers that would affect this rate, but ultimately it's $17.70 an hour. Wow, that's low. It is low in comparison to some um, agencies, caregiving agencies that do take overhead and can charge $35, $40 an hour. And it really depends on what people's needs are, right? We're talking about a whole spectrum of caregiving needs and um, caregiving skills. So it could be as simple as helping with meal preparation, but it could also be caring for someone's personal body or physical body while mm-hmm. they are living in bed and can't get up toileting you know bathing all of this so there's a pretty large range of need and so we're saying for the sake of this conversation that 1770 an hour is what these folks are going to be paid for so that being said <laughs> anywhere oh, between get 70 cost later because <laughs> yeah um ultimately what that looks like is 2062 hours of care right for a month for no j- total $36,500 oh, oh, yes. of this earned benefit translates to in this scenario 2062 hours which is if someone has 24 hours of caregiving, someone in your home, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that is just under three months of time for care. If you have, you know, an alternate could be someone has a caregiver that comes every day, but only four hours a day, right? Just to supplement family or other caregiving options. Mm -hmm. That is about 17 months of care. Mm -hmm. So, you know, year, year and a half. Yeah. So still, I mean, when we're thinking about someone needing care, I mean, if you're looking at a chronic illness, this isn't really necessarily touching a big amount of need. Yeah. But it could also be really super supportive. Yeah. It, It is absolutely meant to be the buffer between when you need something pretty immediately and that's a relative term. We'll, we'll see again how that plays out in, in real time. But it is supposed to be the buffer between that and getting more permanent resources in place. Whether that is a long-term care insurance policy, which is the bane of my existence. <laughs> so let's just, do you have more on this specifically? Because I do want to just dive into soapbox issues. I'm just chomping at my bit here. No, I think I think, you know... 
I think that's kind of the the quick little wrap up. I mm-hmm. mean, the goal ultimately of this program is to help people live independently and at home as long as possible. Yes. Um, and to create more access to resources that we don't have right now that are incredibly limited and that is Hallie's soapbox that we will get on right now um it's a big one but you know another thing that I think is is helpful is you know with Medicaid when we're comparing these two programs Medicaid long-term care we're also looking at implications for like a state recovery and when someone dies having the state come back in and claim some of that money that they've been supporting people with Mm -hmm. i was super pleased to learn that this insurance program the care act does not include any sort of a state recovery like it truly is an insurance benefit that we get to access that we've paid into just like medicare social security Mm -hmm. that kind of a thing yes i love that Absolutely. There and and by the way, I'm gonna be getting into soapbox issues, but I do want you to know there is hope in the end. I'm this is not all negative, but there's just sometimes you need to do a grind my gear situation and this is one that's just it's been simmering and it's it's definitely come towards a head recently. Well, and I, I appreciate you saying that because jumping on your soapbox that I will also join you on. It's big enough. <laughs> You know, leading into that, I know that this Washington Cares Act is getting a lot of slack, right? There's a lot of grumbles. There's a lot of frustrations. As someone who works in long-term care, who works with end-of-life, who sees the burden on families and the burnout of caregivers, this actually is super hopeful to me. Yes. I am actually very, I mean, it's, it's not enough. It's never enough. Don't get me wrong. But this at least opens up more doors that are not there. Yes. And that's the soapbox yes. um, that we're getting in is because, you know, this does seem to me like a really good option. Mm-hmm. So, Thank you. Opening that soapbox, jumping on top. Here we go. All right. I'm going to, as, as I'm so excited to talk about soapboxes, I'm going to step back off my soapbox for one foot and keep one foot on the soapbox. Okay. Because I want to talk about long-term care insurance for just a moment. Yeah. And I want to start with that because it does relate to the Washington Cares Act in that originally there was conversation about if you buy into a long-term care insurance policy, you can exempt yourself out of the tax. Now, that is no longer an option, but for a lot of people, a lot of their employers were encouraging people to sign up for long-term care insurance. I know this for a fact because someone that's very close to me ended up signing up for one, and I was able to get access to that policy and read through it. So, two things. Number one, That long-term care insurance policy did not allow people to read the actual policy before they signed up for it. Oh. Which feels illegal. Number two. I mean, definitely not informed consent. Number two, that that lower cost long-term care insurance policy is $28 a month. Didn't I just tell you $50,000 a year is $24 a month for something that is accessible immediately for $36,000. Well, yeah, $37,000 income for a year is $18 a month. So you're you're already looking at something that's more expensive. Number three, having been in this role and having looked at many a long-term care insurance policy, which are exceedingly expensive, 
monthly, mm-hmm. which is why most people don't have them. And increasing, actually, now that these, <laughs> this Washington CARES Act presented that, there was yes. a lot of inflation around that. Well, some long-term care companies actually pulled out during this time. So that was another challenge. That wasn't really publicized either. But when this all happened last year, a lot of long-term care insurance companies pulled out of Washington State. Hmm. Again, yep. one foot on the soapbox, all right? Also, maybe good. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, yeah, you're right. Because if you have currently, if you're one of the lucky ones that was able to afford, and I use lucky loosely, if you were able to afford or have been able to afford or got in on a really good deal on long-term care insurance, there are a few policies that were great, but you really have to read the details. 90% of them that I've read have a 90-day window where you have to start care and pay up front by yourself before they will even start to kick in any of the money. And it's not a reimbursement. That's 90 days of you paying. Full price. Full price. $35 an hour, $40 an hour for caregiving. Yes. Well, and I think, you know, there are some that are great policies, but great, I would argue, is also relative. Because unfortunately, in our jobs in our career we see many people that have these insurance policies that actually end up not being able to access them at all yeah because of the stipulations you know that's what i'm saying the 10 percent that are great are the ones i'm talking about that actually don't have that 90-day window yes or they have an exemption for hospice those are rare yeah they are rare. there are also ones that will pay so another reason that you really need to look into it if you have a policy like this you need to look into the details of what they specifically cover Some of them will only cover care in a long-term care facility, a skilled nursing facility or a traditional nursing home. Not at home. Not at home. Some of them will cover in-home care, assisted living, nursing homes, but they will only cover at a rate of $60 a day. Let me go ahead and tell you how much a skilled nursing facility costs per day. Hmm. Since we just talked about it being $10,000 to $12,000, break it down, you're paying $350 a day or more. Yeah. So that $60 a day for a skilled nursing doesn't doesn't put a very big dent. And most of those people are paying, like I said, four or $500 a month, a month for years for a policy that's not going to pay out nearly as much as they put in. Yeah. It's so frustrating and grifty. It's very it upsetting. It's, it's, um, it is disappointing when we get folks that have these. Every time they say, I have long-term care insurance, my heart just kind of drops a little bit. And I just cross my fingers and I say, like, okay, let's look at it. Mm-hmm. Because there are a lot of barriers to using it. Um, and that's really what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. The policies themselves vary. Some are better than others. But when it comes down to it, you know, none of us can predict our diseases or our trajectory of that. If we're going to have a sudden death, if we're going to have a long chronic illness of years before we die, right? And so knowing knowing that, it's important to kind of weigh how much you want to contribute. Mm-hmm in order for what you could or could not get back. Yeah, and and here's me putting my other foot back on the soapbox. <laughs> oh, I thought we were on there. Oh, oh no, that was oh. my one foot off while I was still talking about long-term oh, care. Oh, my mistake. So people don't want to talk about what their care needs might be. They don't want to plan for long-term care. Now, I don't think I've met a single person that hasn't said to me, well, I just want to die in my sleep. Oh, gosh, I know. I wish I would have looked that statistic up because I feel like it's 1%. (laughs) 
Yeah, everybody wants to just freaking die in their sleep at 90. Or, I'm not going to repeat, but you all know if you watch Game of Thrones what uh, Tyrion Lannister wanted when he died. But it still involved being old and having a sudden death. So, that is, a t- that is great. You can want that and hope for that, and I hope you get it. Frankly, it's not likely, for the most part, if, if, if you allow for a natural death. Yeah. No, I know. That's I know it's a reality. I think, too, another thing is, you know, until I got into this line of work and even working in hospice and working with families and caregivers, you're not in this space until you're here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, honestly, you know, a lot of what we talk about with families and patients and caregivers is what can you expect with your physical body or your emotional state as you decline with your illness. I mean, because really, unless you witness that in someone, you don't know what that even looks like or what kind of care is even needed or Mm -hmm. what to even expect as you get to that stage. So it is hard to contextualize, you know, what these benefits can or cannot give you, not even knowing what that part of your life is going to look like. Well, and this is why I have Katie here to rein me in, because (laughs) if anyone knows me, You know that I have had hospice in my life since I was seven. So my reality and my worldview includes end of life very clearly. I know what that looks like. I know what it can involve. I know how much care we needed at a very young age. And then going into hospice work, having done this for seven years, I'm very well aware of all the different scenarios. And I would love for everyone to just (laughs) die in their sleep at 90, but that's not likely. Well, and part of our job is, you know, helping give education and train people and to what to expect and what that yes. looks like and how to prepare for that. Well, I haven't told you, but uh, fun fact, in honor of this podcast, my 50th birthday in a couple of years, yes, I'm that old, uh, <laughs> is going to be themed Someday We'll All Be Dead. Oh, fantastic. And I'm going to have little gift bags with advanced directives and caregiving information can i make like the cake or cupcakes yes please because i've got ideas fantastic i mean it goes back to actually this is totally side (laughs) note sorry um when we had a lovely employee leave us which was devastating um and we had a goodbye party for her and you found this cake that what wasn't it like a gravestone that's because i had that cake made for me when i left my last job yes okay it was gravestone yes and it said, you're dead to us now. You're dead to us now. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. It Absolutely. was the best cake I've ever seen. Yes. So I would love that. I would love every bit of it. But and please know we approached that with humor and she took it as humorous. So it was actually a very healthy and fun thing to do, not morbid. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, and I, I want to honor what you're saying, Katie, is that not everyone has this life experience. That's my point coming to this. Absolutely. I have these feelings internally, but I'm not going to come to a patient or family member and say, why haven't you planned for this? You know, totally. Everybody. That is our job security. That's exactly our job security. (laughs) So I, I would love to lessen our job security by having people plan that we're still going to be needed, but it's so vital and important for people to really understand what that looks like and whether it's end of life or like you've said people that have a sudden disability or a chronic disability or many other things where they need care it's so so important and nobody wants to do it it's an unpleasant conversation nobody wants to talk about death or needing care at the end of life or needing care period everybody in america let me just specify 
most people in America want independence. They want to live on their own or with as much autonomy and independence as possible until they die peacefully in their sleep. Yes. Drop dead. Yeah. That'd be great. Oh, it would be. But it's not likely. My hope and dream and wish too. Um, (laughs) No. And I think, you know, I think this conversation is important because nuances aside, you know, I think there's a misconception about what, you know, all of this is really big right now with this whole idea of the Washington Cares versus long-term care insurance and all of this. And yes, it's all prevalent right now because these things are in the forefront. But in the background, the reality forever is unknown that Medicare and other just commercial insurances do not, or I will say rarely because I never like to do the whole always, never, mm-hmm extremes, but most of them, the majority of them, Mm 99.1% of them, (laughs) do not include a long-term care option. Well, you haven't even seen my notes. That's a fantastic segue. Which is what we would call custodial care. It's anything that's not immediately medical, like going to the emergency room, going to the doctor. I mean, any sort of like long-term maintenance of your own person and living situation as you decline in age, none of that is covered. Fun fact, I just found out, like literally this week, that Medicare does not cover yearly physicals. They only cover wellness exams, which don't include vitals. Really? Yes. Huh. I found that out with my own mother. That's interesting. (laughs) But I digress. Um, That seems like part of wellness to me, but all right. It sure should be. Uh, Fantastic segue, because that's exactly what I was going to get into next. So... As a history lesson, we used to all generally die at home. Families would have doctors come to their houses. People would live on homesteads and communally a little bit more than they do now. The industrial age came up. We all started moving. We all started living more uh, in an urban setting rather than a rural setting, most of us. And people started going to hospitals to die. Now, in this day and age, again, 2023 and probably the last... 20 years, we have been sliding back into staying home. People wanting to be home. People not necessarily wanting to go to the hospital to die. Well, and not only that, less access to being able to die in a hospital and being able to die in another facility living situation. Exactly. So that's what comes back to what Medicare does and does not cover. So it's important for people to know, as I've heard many people say, well, When I get sick or need help, I just go to the hospital. (laughs) Yeah, that's not how any of that works. So, (laughs) hospital stays, and again, like Katie said, it's all detail, and we're never going to say 100% all the time, but a qualifying hospital stay, they're not going to keep you in the hospital if you don't have an acute medical need, really. Yes. They're not going to keep you, even if they keep you for observation, it's very short term. So going to the hospital to quote-unquote die without symptom management issues is not going to happen. And let me tell you, part of what happens is that hospital staff, which as you've seen over the last three years since COVID, has been completely overworked and overrun and, and all the other overs, is that they're going to start putting pressure on you to come pick up your loved one or they're going to call APS because it's neglect because you left your family member at the hospital. 
And, you know, again, I think the reality is, is because in the community, families, caregivers are so overburdened, there's not a lot of long-term care options, Mm -hmm. and there's no ability for most people to pay for it. So the hospital is that emergency crisis last resort option Mm -hmm. that we all know is there. And unfortunately, we have, as a society, made it our backstop. But then when the rubber hits the road, that option is not a reality. I think is what I've found. I think you're right. And I think, you know, I'm hoping, (laughs) I'm hoping that, you know, with changes like this and creating the Washington Cares Act, you know, one of the barriers that I'm sure is on Howie's soapbox (laughs) is the limited amount of caregivers we have in this community Mm -hmm. as a profession. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is, especially during COVID, oh my gosh, we thought we were shorthanded before, but now throughout the last few years, finding caregivers, either independently or through an agency, is incredibly difficult. And so- For many reasons. For many reasons. I mean, for example, they get paid $17 an hour. So it's not a sustainable option for a lot of people. I don't know how many people are willing to wipe a stranger's butt for $17 an hour. I mean, let's get down to brass tacks. It's not always toileting, but- Physically moving someone that can't help themselves, if you haven't done it before, is very, very hard on your body. It's hard. Caregivers are not given enough respect and credit for what they have to do. Not have to do. Most of them want to do it. But, you know, it's a hard job. And how many times have you heard someone say, I don't want to pay someone to just sit there. (laughs) Well, you're not going to. There's no world in which caregivers just appear when you need them. Yeah. That's you can't, unrealistic. can't plan your bowel movements necessarily. <laughs> um, you could try. I could try. Yeah, no, I think as, I mean, the boomers are coming up, right? Our population's aging. We've been sitting on this and watching this escalate over the past handful of years with the same, if not less, resources. Mm-hmm. So it is a devastating reality and a barrier to care. So, you know, with this newfound focus on prioritizing long-term care Mm -hmm. in this state, perhaps (laughs) it will also open a conversation of more needs in terms of having access to what they are saying they will provide. Well, multiple things. And I love that you've brought up the the boomers, right? So what my hope is, and we're going to spurse in some hope here, here and there. I'm going to do a little sousant of hope. Love it. I'm hoping that with this boomer population, which is the largest population of any population recently, all the populations before them are less. So I'm hoping that with the boomer population, their children, Gen X, which is my generation, and millennials are going to start which to is my witness, generation <laughs> are going to start to witness what care needs people need in reality. And that is also going to start conversation. And that's also going to start planning. And that's also going to start living in the reality that you might not die in your sleep peacefully in 102 or whatever. Yeah. 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 So. Um, well, with, we shall see. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, you know. We have a long way to go. Yeah. But I agree in terms of, like, for the sake of hope, I am hopeful that this means hope. <laughs> and I'm hoping that it also means that we can start investing in paying caregivers more so that we can attract more people. Now, this is not the point of this podcast, and I'm not going down this rabbit hole, but I do want to just add this one little blurb that there are many more, at least I've seen recently, many more immigrants 
doing caregiving roles recently. And I really, everything's tied together. And so I would hope that part of the conversation that we have going forward is how does immigration and the sustainability and the reformation of, of immigration, how does that inform caregiving in the future? Or how does caregiving inform immigration? You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I know we work in a very small rural area. Mm-hmm. Our service area is is fairly wide, but you're right. I mean, we've started to see a lot more adult family homes opening, mm-hmm. which has been amazing because, again, the need is so great. And there are a lot of first, well, immigrants and first-generation mm-hmm. folks that are involved in this, in caregiving, in opening these homes and staffing them and um, caring for other people. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a that's a great topic. And yeah, I mean, for another podcast, for another that podcast. could be a whole other episode. <laughs> but um, I just wanted to throw that in there that I'm hoping that this conversation and the boomers and everything is, is opening up that world. There's a lot more involved in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So I want to jump down to Medicaid and its very strict financial limitations. And the right. reason that's my soapbox is not because as a taxpayer, I want to pay more so that people get access to more because I get that. I get that frustration that, well, why do I have to pay for somebody that didn't put in for it or, or plan for it or whatever? Well, we're having this conversation because people don't plan for it. Well, and because <laughs> we just stated our average income in this state is $37,000 exactly. a year. Exactly. I mean, it's they planning or not. <laughs> yes. And let's not forget people living with disabilities that aren't even allowed to. I mean, again, that's a whole nother episode, but people that aren't even allowed to make more than this minimum wage to access services that they need. Correct. So people that are on, for example, social security disability are not really allowed to go get a job because they'll be over the income threshold. So those people would be the people also accessing Medicaid, not only our seniors that are on a fixed income, but also our people living with disabilities or many other reasons that people would get to a point of needing more assistance than they can afford financially. Mm -hmm. And as we're talking about Medicaid, I just want to be clear, we're talking about a system that's already been established. Yes. Washington Cares Act is very different, though it is state-related. Medicaid, in which we are discussing, is an already established program that that we access regularly. And may I just also clarify for people that hear some words interchangeably, Medicare is a financially regulated system. It is also federally. I'm sorry, federally, financially, financially, and financially, but federally regulated. Federally regulated, <laughs> and Medicaid is state per state is regulated by the state and run by the state. So two distinct programs. Um, you may and, have both. Unfortunately, the left hand didn't talk to the right, and they are named <laughs> far too similarly to keep track. Agree, but I just wanted to clarify that. No, yes, it's a good med- clarification. Medicare is somewhat financially based but not in the same way and you're required to sign up for it at a certain age medicaid excuse me medicaid has financial requirements and there there's a very low financial threshold to be eligible yes now may i just remind all of you and everybody that's heard me talk at nauseam about this medicaid will look back at your finances for five years So don't think 
that the month before you're going to need long-term care and you have a nest egg that you want to give your kids, as nice as that is, you're not just going to be able to hand them over the money and then be able to apply for Medicaid and have the state pay for you, i.e. taxpayers pay for you. It will disqualify you. Essentially, I think, you know, within the last five years for Medicaid, mm -hmm. you have you are able to have some assets. You can have a home. You can have a car, right? In addition to that, though, mm -hmm. you can only have less than $2,000 in your bank account, and there is a limit on income per person per couple. And I would say don't even take that as gospel because that changes. There are it exemptions. It depends on if you're married or not. So that's a good baseline, Katie. I like that you're putting it in context because $2,000 a month is not a lot. Yeah. But sometimes it's even less than that. Sometimes it's less. And it's important to know that every circumstance is different. That's why they always tell us, don't tell anybody about finances. Tell them well, to contact us. Which is why I don't tell anybody about finances. <laughs> and I call Aging and Disability Resources because the woman there is my favorite. And she's so helpful and wonderful. So I just send everyone to her. <laughs> so, so if you have questions about it, please look at whatever your county's... Um, Aging and Disability Resource. Well, Aging and Disability will be in your Senior Resource Center for your county. So each county, you're generally going to start with a Senior Center type or Community Resource Center type. And within that is generally going to be an Aging and Disability that can direct you to, to specifically what your needs are. Yes. And they also handle a lot of the Medicaid applications, caregiving, that kind of thing. Also, Meals on Wheels for fun. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So they really are helpful. It's, it's important to know what your community resources are, even if it's not for long-term care. Sometimes it's just a meal brought to your house. Well, shoot, they know far more than we do, I feel like. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. And for people that are on hospice, people that are earlier on in, in their life. Absolutely. So that's one thing is, it, yes, there are limitations financially on in Medicaid, that drive me banana sandwich. If, if someone is just barely over the threshold, for example, and there's a spend down um, or their their care requires like even $20 more, it's it can be really frustrating if you're in that in-between space. And there and are many people. Most people, I feel like, are in the in-between space. And, you know, if you're single and you're living in your own home, there's absolutely going to be a state recovery and there's going to be a challenge even getting into that. So I'm not going to get into specifics of a state recovery. If you want to look into what a state recovery looks like and, and all of that, please go to your state's Medicaid source and, and or aging disability. But <clears throat> the point is, it can be really frustrating for us as social workers. And then in turn, the family and caregiver thinking that they had this option and then getting to the end after a couple months of assessment, by the way, and then finding out, oh, I can't access it because I'm just a little over income and now I don't have access to any resources. Mm. I know you've been there. What are your thoughts? You're looking at me like... I know. Just, <laughs> it is a hard conversation, you know, and I think the purpose, again, is not to be totally discouraging, but, you know, they're important realities. Yeah, and you know, there's my, a lot of barriers to accessing what is available. Right, and again, my honestly, most of my soapboxes are because people 
don't have the conversations for a variety of reasons, many legitimate, that they don't know about the realities of these things. And then when they get to the end, they're frustrated with us. They're frustrated with caregivers or the state or whatnot. And that, you know, bureaucratic pain is real. There's lots of reasons to have it. Understandably so, for sure. Mm -hmm. But that's why we're having this conversation, because we want you to know these are the barriers that we're finding. And now that you know, you can try to plan better, right? So looking back again, they look back at your finances for five years. That means if you sold a property in another state four years ago, they're going to ask you for that. Any decent amount of money that you've spent in the last five years before you apply for Medicaid, they're going to ask you for proof. If you can't provide that proof, and I'm talking like, again, not being specific, but somewhere, you know, like $500,000, if it's a property, if it's a tangible thing, they're going to want to know. And people don't keep receipts. People don't keep receipts for that long. So that's going to be a barrier if you want to access something like state Medicaid. And people don't think about it. Mm-hmm. I think I need a lot of deep breaths for this. Why are we episode. going deep into Medicaid? Just just because of the financial, like, that that's one specific, that's as deep as I'm going. Okay. One, that's one specific example is they're going to look back and you need to know that anything that you've spent down that's a property, that's a vehicle, that kind of thing. They're going to want proof of it. So not only is it just a good idea to have a folder with <laughs> your expenses, but be prepared that you might get a no because you're not able to provide that. Yeah. It's not just automatic. That they don't just sense. take your most recent tax return and say, okay, you're good to go. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Um, again, limited resources, even if you're qualified. So let's just say, you know, one of the, one of my soapboxes, and this is not a soapbox against the state necessarily. There's lots of reasons why they're short staffed, but let's just say you're lucky enough to be on hospice, get our help, do an expedited referral and get your Medicaid assessment done in a month or two. That, you know, a month or two can seem like an eternity when you need care now, first of all. Now, let's say you do all that. You finally qualify for X amount of hours a month or a week, but there's no caregivers available. Well, and that's kind of, you know, that is a question that I was considering is, so for folks that we have now that have Medicaid Mm -hmm. and are utilizing one of their long-term care programs of having supplemental payment for caregiving in their home, like the state will pay, Mm -hmm. you know, for some of the caregiving, you have a participation rate, you pay some, Medicaid pays the rest. There are very few caregiving agencies that contract with Medicaid, that Medicaid will pay. And why is that? For these care, well, their reimbursement rate is so low. But in so, fact, so is the VA. Oh, really? hmm Oh, that's good to know. I did not know that. One more soapbox in my corner. Okay. <laughs> getting taller and taller. Uh-huh. Um, I got the Eiffel Tower soapboxes over here. You're making a lot of soap. <laughs> um, so one of my questions, actually, which I feel like common sense logistically with this program tells me that you have the funds from the CARES Act that you put towards caregiving that you acquire, mm-hmm. that you obtain. Mm-hmm. So... Perhaps there are not limitations on needing a caregiver to be contracted or not. Whereas with Medicaid, 
caregivers have to be contracted to be paid by Medicaid. Agreed. Medicaid does allow, with rules, for family members to become caregivers as well. Ooh, that's another question. What if the CARES Act, I wonder if the CARES Act... It's your money. Well, it's you your do money. with it what you want. That's if you true. want to pay okay. a family member to care for you, you can. Good point. Um, I suppose that's right. Yeah. Because they give it to you up front. They don't dictate or they don't pay the vendor directly. They give you the money and you dole it out. So if you blow it at the casino, mm. <laughs> you're not going to qualify for Medicaid, likely. So just know you've got a couple months that you're going to have to make up for. Yeah. I know I have another point with that, but we'll probably come back to it because this has been building for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so this brings me to caregiving resources, which we've already talked a little bit about. We're already in short supply of actual caregivers. Right. right. Even in the places that aren't contracted, that do pay well, that do pay their caregivers more than $17 an hour, they're still short-staffed. There has been a mass exodus over the last couple of years for a variety of reasons, not just the vaccines. May I just say that? Mm-hmm. And the caregivers that we did have were also aging out. You know, like we yeah, said, this absolutely. is not something you can do forever. This is hard on your body. It's very hard on your body, yeah. And your emotional state. And your emotional state, absolutely. And it's just cost prohibitive for most to access caregiving resources because, like we said, it could be... You could be lucky and it's only around $20 an hour, which is still a lot. But nowadays, caregiving agencies, $35, $40 an hour. And most of them have a minimum requirement. So you're not just going to be able to pay for an hour in the morning and an hour at night. You're going to have to pay for three to four hours at a time. Because people aren't going to be driving all over town for one hour at a time. Especially through an agency. Right. And that's so. not going to change with the CARES Act because that's a specific company. Well, and my policy. whole soapbox is not just about what affects the Washington CARES Act will have, sure. but sure. it's important to know what how that affects. It's good context. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost always private pay. So, for example, uh, we already mentioned the Long Term Care Act, or I'm sorry, the Long Term Care Insurance, and that's only if they have it, and only if they've met the limitations and privately paid and met the criteria. Hospice does not provide care, so you may have heard stories of hospice facilities. Those are few and far between and getting even fewer now that there's a nationwide sweep for privatization of hospice, and that's a whole other episode I'm not getting into right now. But the truth is most hospices do not have a hospice care facility. Well, and I want to be clear, too, that when Hallie says hospices do not pay for caregiving, we are paid for by Medicare. Yes. We are governed by Medicare. So hospice would love to pay for whatever they want. <laughs> Unfortunately, Medicare will only will not pay for long-term care, as we just talked about. Facility right. and home caregiving, anything. We get a daily rate for whatever care we give. And if that's every person all the time <laughs> or none at all, yeah, we don't get, you know, yeah. See, see my previous information about what hospice does but that's on a different episode but yes you're right we get paid for most of the time by medicare or commercial insurance or privately and it's not nearly enough 
to fund private caregiving. Right. For the hosp- the hospice benefit under any insurance does not pay for caregiving. Correct. So it's important to know that people think they've heard people say, well, my family member was at a hospice care facility. First of all, that may have been true. There may have been a time when hospice care facilities took people in the last days to a week of life and didn't have to pay for it. I don't know of any place that doesn't do that, at least in our area. There's nowhere that does that that doesn't require payment. They are requiring payment as much as a skilled nursing facility It's just that they will accept you easier and also accept Medicaid pretty quickly, but they're not free. No. That I know of. No. So that's, that's no longer an option, at least where we are. Yes. Maybe there exists one somewhere, but I don't know. Maybe Mother Teresa has a hospice care facility somewhere. Probably, (laughs) but it's been taken over by now. Right. So let's talk about... Placement versus home care versus family burden. So if one has people and are willing to be able to be caregivers, that's number one. We, you know, when we're talking about end-of-life care or someone that needs more care than just living independently. This could be a variety of, of care needs. This could be someone that just needs help with their medication management. This is someone that just needs help getting up and dressed in the morning and, and undressed and back in bed at night. Or this could be somebody that needs full care, that is completely bedbound, that is not able to make decisions for themselves, whatever. There's a big spectrum of care that's needed, as you talked about earlier. So when we're talking about different options for care at the end of life, mostly is what I'm talking about. Most people, back to the I want to die at home in my sleep and be able to be fully walking around and do everything I want the day before. Well, regardless. The options of care are in-home care. Yeah. Right? Maybe it's caregiving paid. Maybe it's your family. That's assuming you have family or a circle support to do it. Or physically willing and emotionally able to. Right. Or don't have a job or kids or their own health needs. Right. Right? There is also, again, the family burden. Because we don't live as a communal society for the most part. Yeah. We have all separated out. And this goes back to dying in the hospital versus dying at home. This is all kind of come about at the same time. We, we have this strong value in America of independence. And that runs through end of life. And I want to, yeah, and I do want to say that, you know, when we talk about burden, um, that's a heavily weighted word, right? It is. I mean, it's, it's hard. You know, we hear from patients a lot. They don't want to be a burden on family, right? Um, it's associated with guilt. It's associated with hardship. I want to be clear that when we're talking about burden, there's not a judgment in that regard. It's specifically the time and energy and effort that it takes to care for someone else. Yes. And most people, um, not most people, but, um, majority, a lot of family members and friends are willing and able to and take find on it to be an honor. and find it to be an honor. So it's still a, a burden because it is time and energy and effort, mm-hmm. but it is not necessarily burdensome in the emotional state of, of being. So I just want to be yes. clear. No, I appreciate that. And that's important to delineate what I meant by that. So I'm glad that you did. Um, the other option is placement. And that comes with its own set of guilt and 
difficulty. Right. Not, Not everybody, even counting costs. <laughs> right. Putting, you know, uh, sending someone that you love to live at a facility at another location um, does come with a lot of mm-hmm. burden as well, right? Yeah. Absolutely. It's a great option for a lot of people, money aside. It's also not a good option for some people, too. Mm -hmm. Everybody's different. Yes. And we'll get back into placement in a minute. And my soapbox is about placement. But for now, what I'm talking about is the limitations of caregiving. And the other challenge is people often do not consider what all of that entails. So... There's so many, I just, sometimes I I get lost in my soapbox. You are, you're getting so deep in your soapbox. It's been building for a long time, that's Well, I also want to say, though, placement is a hard word. I'm struggling with placement because we use that term in hospice because we are, we are in charge of facilitating that move and someone moving in. Yeah. But placement also really suggests that it is unvolitional. Mm. Um, And... Explain that word, which is big. Okay. I know what you mean. No, I know. I know. I'm trying to think of. So, you know, people live in facilities, right? Like we can't force anyone to do anything or not do anything. People have autonomy. They can make their own decisions. Self-determination. We support that completely. Might not always be the safest of options. And we do the best we can for harm reduction and making them safe and comfortable. But ultimately, I can't say... I know you want to be home, but no way I'm going to place you in a facility. I have yes. no power to do that. Correct. And that's both, I you know, that value of autonomy and choice and independence is not only hospice, but also social work. Yeah. So, absolutely. So, when we talk about placement, we're talking about someone living in an alternate arrangement. Not living at home. Yes. Going to live somewhere else at a facility, at a skilled nursing location, at an adult family home. But we are not placing them. <laughs> yes, I'm. So, I, I'm this, are, is, this is why I have Katie. <laughs> no, it's well, it's hard because you know we have our vernacular, which yeah. is or is not appropriate at work. You know, we lean on these. Well, it's, terms. A, med- it's a medical model. Right? It's a medical model. Yeah. yeah. And so, but I, (laughs) it's hard then translating that into this forum of conversation Mm -hmm. where every, every word we say, I'm like, (laughs) Ooh, what does that mean? Ooh, that sounded like, (laughs) I I love that. I'm like, wait, we're not placing them. (laughs) No, no, I agree. And, and, And I'm glad you brought that up. It's important to talk about what that means. And when you hear words like that, it's okay to push back. Yeah, no, good point. And and clarify what we mean by that. So, yes. yes, absolutely. It is us facilitating care needs and that may or may not be in the home. Yes. It and, could totally be helping someone move into yeah. an assisted living or of some kind. Assisted living. Let's go ahead and get on that soapbox. Oh, gosh. I didn't even write down. I did write down assisted living. So. Well, there's different levels of care, right? This is, this is my problem. With assisted living. So you heard us talking about cost of what skilled nursing is. <sighs> assisted living in many instances. No, I'll back up. Assisted living, I would say in most instances, is a la carte. Meaning you pay for the level of care that you need. But your need is not determined by you. That's number one. 
your need is determined by the facility. That's number two. So there's a lot of element of no control into what you are paying. Yes. Because you're not the one determining that. Yes, and. (laughs) You may be lulled into a security by an assisted living costing less initially. Mm. When, When you look at the full options, and this is... The probably the peak of my soapbox of a, <laughs> assisted living is that they will promise you the world, and most times, not all, most times, they cannot provide what they're actually promising you in reality on the ground when it comes to full care needs. They may tell you they can. What they mean by that and what you perceive as what that means are not the same thing. Katie, thoughts? No, it's very true. So, no, I know. It makes me so upset. Well, and it's, it varies. And I think, you know, we're speaking from our own experience with our yes. local facilities. Yes. And obviously I can easily tell you that the more you pay, the more care you will receive. <laughs> um, up and to a point. Up to a point. And we live in a rural area where even the... Top dollar that you pay may not be able to get you what others might provide because of the limitations of our area. So mm-hmm. we're speaking from a very limited yes. viewpoint. Um, but yes, most most assisted livings don't have the caregiving um, and the staffing and the education and to be able to, to meet someone who is bed bound needing full and total care of their body. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. Full and total care of their body. Yeah. And or medication at night. Oh, yeah. So that's probably... Because most don't have nurses overnight. One of the biggest things, if they have a med tech at night, if they have more than one or two caregivers for however big their facility is at night. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have to go to the bathroom at midnight. Well, if that facility only has one or two caregivers... You might be waiting a while. You might be waiting a while. And that is what is so important to me to educate people on. If you're if nothing wrong with going into an assisted living. Number one, check to see if they take Medicaid or if there's a spend down for Medicaid. Likely not. But if Likely so, not. many places will say you can pay privately for two years and then we will accept Medicaid. The reason that's important is because you don't want to spend all of your money in a place that will never or will at some point kick you out when you run out of money. Yes. Because then your options are way more limited when you actually do need state assistance. It's very hard to find a place to live under a Medicaid payer when you are going in from scratch. Yes. If you start out there and you pay privately for a couple of years, they are far more likely to keep you yes. with a Medicaid payer. Yes. But many facilities don't even have that option. Correct. You're right. The other thing to know is really to get into the details of what do they mean by level one, two, three, four, five, six care. How many staff do they have? What's their turnover rate? These are some questions that you can be asking. You're never going to really know. Until you're in that facility or you know somebody that's been in that facility, frankly, management (laughs) overturns so often that it does change. Caregivers have turnover. But you can get the sense of a facility by asking just some basic questions, like their turnover rate, like how many staff they have at night, like what does it look like when someone needs total and complete care of their body? 
Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll get off my assisted living soapbox for now. But that that's a big one for me is people want to use assisted living because the allure is it costs less. And it absolutely well, does. It does. But we're talking cost less by like $10,000 versus $8,000. I mean, oh, let me just, I didn't even write this down. Let's talk about retirement centers. Oh, gosh, you're just jumping around, aren't you? Well, it's it's associated <laughs> with assisted living, right? So people will see a retirement center for quote-unquote active seniors. Yes. And they're a facility that maybe they manage your meds, they have a cafeteria, they have activities, everything looks great when you're still active. They'll do your laundry. That facility may or may not have increased care availability. Likely does not. Likely does not, especially if it specifically says retirement community, not assisted living. Well, so really quick, can we then just say, you know, from a hierarchical standpoint, top down, right? Yes. Different levels of care. Yeah. Number one, skilled, skilled nursing. nursing, 24-hour nursing, staffed. A nurse on staff at the facility 24-7. Yes. Designed specifically for people with high medical needs. Yes. And even within nursing facilities... There are some that you will find, just as a caveat, that have different levels of care. Some of them don't have, like, the ongoing respiratory support needs. Yeah, it, yeah, it depends. Yeah. Some are applicable, some are not, depending on your specific needs, right? But it is, that's the highest level of care totally. besides the hospital. Besides the hospital, It's yes. the highest level of long-term care. Right. So, yeah. skilled nursing. Yeah. Most expensive Yes. Quote, unquote, most robust, debatable. <laughs> yes. Second down is assisted livings. And those are, that's the second down. Is you might it? not like it. Or is it adult family homes? Well, but from cost to, like, the ratio, the, okay, just, yeah, just okay. bear with me. I'm okay. bearing with you. The second one, assisted livings, yeah. which what Hallie is saying is may or may not be comparable to also an adult family home. Mm-hmm. And assisted living, you've got... Different levels of care from retirement center, independent, levels one through six, which is the amount of care you get for, obviously, money. Mm -hmm. Um, Memory care. All of those are included in that. Put a pin in memory care. We're going to come back to that. Okay, but it's still included. Yes. Uh, Not always, but yes. Not always, but yes. That's assisted living. Mm -hmm. They have a nurse that delegates but not a nurse that's there 24 hours a day they've right. got caregivers they've got med techs they have more robust ability um but it drastically varies from assisted living to assisted living right yes what may or may not be comparable to that is an adult family home mm-hmm. which is a much smaller it's an actual home environment of six residents ish ish mm-hmm. um run by an owner who may or may not also be the caregiver, who has a nurse that's contracted to delegate and help with medication management, but ultimately this is a small residential home Mm -hmm. that provides a little extra care. Now, the ones we have up here are completely, are so robust, they're wonderful, they really help support people through the end of their life with any need like bed bound care all the all the needs yeah. so that is where Hallie is saying arguably it is comparable if not more care than an assisted living at times and the challenge with an adult family home is there's generally only one caregiver very rarely are there two yes so if you have someone that needs 
more extensive or would need two caregivers for transfers or that kind of thing, that's going to be a challenge. If you have someone that needs a lot of cares at night, a lot of adult family homes have only sleeping staff at night. So that's the challenge versus assisted living. Correct. They have waking staff at night. Yes. And then on the drastic, drastic low end of all this is retirement living. Mm-hmm. And this is someone who is getting older, mm-hmm. 55 plus or what have you, mm-hmm. whether it be in a home, whether it be in an apartment, in a, in a facility, but, and you, but you have minimal care. And yeah. anything more than wanting your meals made for you and laundry done for you, then... And maybe housekeeping. Maybe housekeeping. Then you're not... That's it. You're that's on it. your own. You're on your own. So those kind of places, at least where we are, those have generally been in the maybe two to $3,000 range. And that's been a while since I even heard about it. So they seem great. Right? That seems like a great option. Well, I can afford that. I've only got Social Security. (laughs) Sure, you might be able to. Hopefully you die in your sleep peacefully when you're 100. Oh my gosh, you with this. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Okay, I let it go. Okay, so that's, that's the placement versus home versus different options that come about that people don't really know about until they're forced to have to deal with it. Yes. And fair. Why would you? We know about it because we deal with it every day. Yes. And that's why we're here talking to you. So you know about it now. Right? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I did briefly mention, I don't know if you have more to say about the guilt of what is not placement, but <laughs> choosing an alternate living facility with more care. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, we also live in a society where, you know, Western civilization values this autonomy rather than this community aspect Mm -hmm. that Hallie's speaking of. You know, other cultures value caring for their parents and having intergenerational households and Mm -hmm. helping support people aging um, Mm -hmm. in place and caring for them. And not to say that Western society does not necessarily, but we don't have the systems in place to support it. Yes. So individually speaking, families might want to do that. That might not be the barrier, but we also don't have the structure of finances and, you know, resources to help them achieve that, which means, you know, whether they want to or not, sometimes that means mom has to go live somewhere else Mm -hmm. because they can't care for them. They Mm -hmm. can't care for her, right? You just made me think of a place for mom, which is advertised a lot. Yes. Or other places like concierge care and... Yeah. So a a place for mom, just so people know in case they haven't looked into that. A place for mom itself is not actually a place. A place for mom is a place that's contracted to find you placement. It's actually free for the consumer. It is paid for by facilities that have opted in to this program to advertise for them. Yes. So they might not have all of the resources in your area. They have the resources that have been paid into for advertising. But that being said, I've actually had really good experiences with them. I have too. I have too. It is a free option for people to help if you do need to look for somewhere outside of the home. Yes. So this, yes. So you'd be assigned a person and they would, they would 
work with you to figure out what your needs are. They would help you anticipate what your needs could be. Mm -hmm. And they help try to find a good living fit for that specific person. Which is great if you're not on hospice and don't have your own personal social worker. (laughs) Uh, Yes, and also, (laughs) I have no ability to keep track of all the adult family homes, no? (laughs) Correct. So, yes. It's yeah, it's great even with that, you know, to have us help work with them as well. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um my last little blurb that I wrote here was more challenges with care outside the home. So we've we've talked pretty at length about cost. Obviously yeah. cost is a barrier. Definitely. Facilities want money up front for a month. Definitely. Which is exceedingly expensive in a lot of cases. I mean, I don't have $10,000 in my bank account right now. No. No. And you don't know how long someone's going to need care. I mean, we're just talking about end of life here. Where maybe they have six months or less. Maybe they have more than six months. But if you're not in hospice and you need this kind of care, how many years might you need care? And who's got that kind of money? Yeah. Uh, I wanted to come back now that I'm speaking of that. Let's come back to memory care real quick. Yes. So, and this ties into my second note here about agitation slash behaviors. <laughs> so, <laughs> one of the top reasons that families I work with tell me that they need assistance with finding care outside the home is that they can't handle their family member whether it's physically or because of behaviors or whatnot. And when we say behaviors... Yes, please expand. We we talk about specifically people who can be challenging in terms of, well, a lot of different reasons. For us, it's often people that have dementia or some sort of neurodegenerative disease that is affecting their ability to rationalize or... Or people with trauma or mental health or anything, right? But And none of this is blaming those behaviors on the person at all. Not at all. Not at all. Um, It's the reality of a lot of disease progressions, right? Like it impacts your brain and your brain functioning. And, you know, it can result in volatility, agitation. Louis body dementia is a really frequent one, right? And so it may cause your loved one who beforehand may have been great, may have been, you know. It just puts an extra strain. I mean, think about it. Think about arguing with your two-year-old toddler who's not listening to anything you say. (laughs) I know these people are not toddlers. We're just comparing that they don't have control, full control over their emotional or physical state. Correct. And so... When family members who aren't trained caregivers are trying to care for their loved ones at home, (laughs) and maybe they've been doing it for years at this point, they are exhausted, they are burned out, and it's not for lack of want, they want to do it, but they are tired. It's very hard. they physically hurt themselves caring for their loved ones. Their back is bad, or they're elderly themselves, or have their own health issues. Yes. I mean, if we're caring for someone that's 90... Their children are 70, you know? I right. Mean. Exactly. So when we as social workers are trying to help people find alternate living situations, the challenge is then for us that facilities do not want to take people or admit people that have these quote unquote behaviors. I've even had a facility go so far as to say, 
while they fall. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Literally, the reason you exist is because people can't care for their loved ones at home. And you're telling me you won't take these people because of the same behaviors. Yeah. That's, 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 an that's the Eiffel reality. Tower of soapboxes. And also, I want to, as we're having this conversation, I want to just recognize the liabilities, the stress, the regulations that these yeah. facilities are under. Of course. It's not that they don't want to take people, necessarily. Some of them might. Some of them are just assholes, let's be honest. But it's that they have their own regulations. They have to protect other residents. They have to protect their staff. You can't just have somebody walk up and punch another resident in the face, although it happens. Yes. Right? And it's complicated. But it's that's what I hear probably most frequently is, what do you mean I can't find a facility if my loved one is acting out yeah that's exactly why i wouldn't have them in the home well right it's the same reason they won't take them and so it's round and round we go yes and if that is the case please get a hold of your provider your primary care doctor your hospice physician or any other person that might be able to support you with where you are yes who knows you the best who can prescribe medications or non-pharmacological treatments because ultimately, if that is happening, there are ways to try to manage some of that mm-hmm. um, so that some of these options are more accessible. And oftentimes the options will become accessible if you're able to show a pattern of controlled behaviors. Correct. So there, again, there is hope. There's hope in this, but there are things that people don't think about that are barriers that you would think as the family member are just going to be available when you need them. And they're not. They're just not. Similarly, if you have a loved one, for example, with dementia, that is having some sort of psychotic type episode, you may end up at the hospital with that person. They are not going to stay at the hospital, likely. There are times people do end up at the hospital long term in rare instances. But if there are loved ones They are going to be pressured daily to get these people out of the hospital for many reasons. Yeah, to bring them back home. So, don't think that the hospital, even though it's the highest level of care, and we have unfortunately societally allowed that to be the backstop for healthcare for many, many years, Mm -hmm. that is no longer the case. So, don't plan on that being, well, I can just go to the ED. Yeah. No, it's true. Because, you know, the emergency department is for... Emergencies. Emergencies. Right. And emergencies are temporary. Ideally. (laughs) All right. Again, availability for Medicaid, the financial restrictions, the limitation of staff able to even assess your case and go through your application, that takes time. That is not something you just get on a whim. And then... No, this is a really big point that it's not a soapbox issue, but I think it's important to remember. We were talking about all the different levels of care and what they can provide and what they maybe can't provide. No facility anywhere, no matter how great they are, no matter how much staff they have, will never, including the hospital, be one-on-one care. (laughs) No facility will ever give the same care you will give your loved one at home. It's just not realistic. Thoughts? They may give you the same level of care as your loved one at home. (laughs) Okay, fair, fair. (laughs) 
but no, no one will ever have one-on-one care. They will not be sitting at your bedside waiting for you to have a need. At best, they will pop their head in on check on you every two hours. Yes. Every two hours. I want you to hear that. At best. And even if you have a button to ring, it may still take them. 45 minutes. If you're lucky, five to ten minutes. If nothing else is going on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it could take 30, 45 minutes for someone to get there. Yes. And it doesn't matter how much you have to go to the bathroom. It doesn't matter how much pain you're in. You know, unless you're in the hospital with an IV, it may take a little bit of time. And that's just the reality of care in our country right now. Very sad, but true. This From con- our experience. This concludes my caregiving soapbox. I'm not going to say it's my only soapbox, (laughs) and I'm not letting it go, but I would like to leave us with hope. So, Katie, can you give me some hope? Something that that warms the people's hearts. (laughs) That's a tall order, dude. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think it's hopeful in that we are certainly coming to a point in our society where this has to be dealt with, right? Mm -hmm. Like... The boomers are here amongst a lot of other issues, but all of societal burdens are kind of coming to a head. Mm -hmm. And the fact that our state, we're fortunate enough in our state that they're trying to deal with it, whether it's ideal or not ideal, at least. It's something. It's something and it's on the forefront of change. So I find that to be hopeful. I find the adult family homes coming out. Um, and having more options, I find that to be hopeful. I've been in working in hospice for almost 10 years, and I've really only noticed that increase in the last one to two, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, there is a lot of hope out there. And I think the reality that I would say is just, you know, be aware of the barriers and don't be blind to thinking that all of this is going to be there for you. You know, I mean, there are options, there are supports, but they don't come quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. I like it. I mean, it's, it, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's not all bad. Okay. I'll say that. It's not all bad. It's not all bad, even though there are a lot of barriers. There but are. again, that's our job security. So <laughs> just find your local social worker. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Um, I, I, as usual, I forget half of what I was going to say. One thing I did want to bring up, just lastly, about cost and caregiving and giving a little bit of the benefit to the facilities. I had someone recently say, well, my loved one was in a nursing home, and similarly, they were only checked on every couple of hours, and, you know, it costs... At that time, $5,000. And I know other states have lower costs of things. And so maybe they come from another state or they've had a loved one in another state. I want you to consider that everything is tied together. That these caregivers and admin and, and housekeeping and the cooks, all of them have to make a livable wage. Yes. That's not even counting the actual building and maintenance and electrical and other random costs that you're not paying. So when we say your loved one's costs at a skilled nursing facility may be ten to $12,000 a month, 
And you may say, that is ridiculous. It is a lot of money. There is no doubt that's a lot of money, even for somebody that makes a really good living. But I want you to remember that that's for 24-hour care. You're paying for someone to be in a facility monitoring your loved one 24-7 with lights on, with running water, with food, with all of these other things. And so consider that when you're thinking about how much things cost, how much would you be willing to work for? Well, and relatively speaking too, they are working their butts off mm. and very short staffed and very underpaid and very underappreciated. Very underappreciated. And a lot of them are working for for-profit organizations now. So there's a lot of implications there and a lot of opportunity for improvement. Yeah. But just remember too that we're talking about systemic issues um, that are not focused on the individuals that are actually providing the care. Absolutely. Because they are working as hard as they possibly can. Yeah. So I, I just want to caveat that even though I have soapboxes, many of them are systemic issues. And they're going to take much more than just one simple thing to solve. Absolutely. I do appreciate that we have the Washington Cares Act. That is another thing that our state is helping with. We're lucky. In this state, we have a lot of resources that other people don't have. Washington Cares Act being one of them. We also have paid family medical leave. Not many states have that. So if you're working and you're willing to pay for your loved one, it actually is even more expensive than the federal Family Medical Leave Act, allowing you to take time off of work. I believe it's up to four calendar months. Again, not getting into the weeds. If you want to know more about that, Google it. But there is at least the option to be paid to care for your loved one for a certain amount of time, which is not available everywhere. The other option we have in Washington State, and I've done other episodes about this, is the Death with Dignity Act. Giving people the option... If autonomy is your number one thing and you don't want to go through all of this that we just talked about for the last hour and a half, if you don't want to go to a care facility and ha or have people need to wipe your butt, guess what? If you have a terminal illness, six months or less, in this state, and a couple of other things, you're a resident, you're competent, blah, blah, blah. There's some caveats. Look it up. But at least it's an option in Washington to request life-ending medication. I'm not saying you have to. I'm not saying you even should. I'm saying in the hopeful realm, at least it's an option. There are things in the state that are options that we don't have in other states. And Katie's making a face at me right now because I'm sure she has some feelings about me talking about death and dignity. Tied into this conversation, yeah. I never, ever want people to feel like they're a burden to their family or their financials or a reason to take death with dignity. That well, is not at all what I'm trying to say. No. And the reality I will support with you is to say a lot of people that seek the death with dignity option do express fear and guilt and complete desire to not be a burden on people and to be able to live independently until they die. Um, and to not need this kind of care from a standpoint of dignity, control over their life and control over the way that they die. Yes. And unfortunately, you're right. I mean, I guess you are like, yes, this this is a reality that does factor into people's choice in the way that they live and what they choose to access. And fair. I do recognize that I don't want this to ever come across as saying it's an option because of all these barriers we've been talking about, because of the soapboxes. Yeah. But it is an option 
in this state and when I'm talking about hope overall and end of life care and there are people that that is their their autonomy that's their dignity is I don't want someone living with me in my home or having to go to a care facility right because that is that maybe that's suffering to them exactly yeah no I can appreciate that it yeah. felt it felt icky when you said <laughs> <laughs> no I was like ooh <laughs> no I'm glad that this is again this is why I need someone else to bounce us off of because I'll just be talking and in my mind it's completely fleshed out and I forget to say that part so that's why it's good to have someone else to bounce these ideas well, off it's just of. a hard and very careful conversation right mm-hmm. yeah always always in any context this is why I appreciate you. I appreciate you too. <laughs> you and your soapboxes. Oh, so many soapboxes. Okay, so we're going to get off our soapbox. We're going to end this episode. If you have soapboxes of your own or other things you want me to talk about in regards to caregiving or alternate living situations, not placement, <laughs> or end-of-life planning, or hey, make sure you get your directives done. I've done episodes on those too, so please go back and look at those. You can always find me on Twitter at SomedayDeadPC. You can email me at SomedayDeadPC at gmail.com. Um, talk amongst your friends. Talk amongst your family. Let your loved ones in Circle of Support know what you want. Get it in writing. Let people know. Please. It's hard. Nobody wants to talk about it. Mm-mm. But it's so, so important to know what someone might want. And you can change your mind, sure. But at least give them a start point. It's a gift to the people around you. It really, really is. And why is that? Because we're remembering to live. Because someday we'll all be dead. <laughs>